This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the art channel of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and today I'm very excited to have a returning guest author, Amy Von Lintel, and her co-author, Bonnie Roos, to discuss their book, Three Women Artists, Expanding Abstract Expressionism in the American West. Three Women Artists is published by Texas A&M University Press, and it is truly hot off the press. It was published in 2022. And I would like to begin by asking each of the authors to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about the background that brought them to the project. So maybe, Amy, would you like to start? Um, Yeah, sure. So Amy Von Lintel. And um, my title is Professor of Art History and Director of Gender Studies at West Texas A&M University. And um, let's see. I think Bonnie and I have always been – neither one of us are from the area where we are now employed. And we've been at this university together as colleagues for – over a decade. And we've always been interested in the kinds of art stories that one could discover. And we've seen that, you know, the Amarillo Canyon area of West Texas is um, more connected nationally and internationally than we expected. I think this stems from the fact that it's been a kind of crossroads with railroads first and then Route 66, and now it's on I-40. So it seems like middle of nowhere, but it has this kind of connectivity that we've discovered. And then what we would do is, um, you know, make connections with some of the people in the area that became art collectors. And it was their collection, and they invited us to go travel and see their works of art in in their houses and, and, you know, this idea of discovering some of the behind the scenes stories of already known artists like Elaine de Kooning and Louise Nevelson, you know, Bonnie and I kind of fell into this together because we like that 
um, discovery and treasure hunt a little bit. Yeah, this is Bonnie Roos. I'm department head in the English philosophy and modern languages department. And, uh, and I uh, am a professor of English, but I have um, some background in art history. And Amy has always been kind enough to sort of include me when uh, there are opportunities to teach or to research together or to co-write. And so working collaboratively, especially in a small place, in a regional place, has been one of the biggest selling points of it, working with other people who are similarly passionate about research. And um, this project hits very close to my areas of expertise. I work in abstract expressionism in uh, in my background in art history. So um, this was an area that I felt like I could contribute something. Um, And as Amy said, I love that finding ways to talk about our area that open it up to new possibilities and new uh, ways of understanding it. I think oftentimes we're pigeonholed for a variety of reasons, and I like complexity and I like understanding our world as complex. And I hope that this book reflects that kind of complexity. What a great collaboration it sounds that you have. And to come from different areas to your particular place um, and bring kind of the outsider, maybe insider knowledges, it, it's powerful. And with your comment, Bonnie, about your special interest in abstract expressionism, I'm wondering if both of you would tell us a little bit about the motivation to bring forth three women artists of abstract expressionism from the region. What was the the motivation to pull your detective work, it sounds like, and your research and your local knowledge into this book? Um, I think what it allowed us to do, Bonnie and I have been really interested in kind of revisionist narratives and you know, this book has a lot of them at, in play. And one of them is this movement toward seeing women as more central in modernism and in abstract expressionism in the U.S. rather than, you know, peripheral, right? So, I mean, we're not the only ones doing this. There's been some excellent books, um, The Night Street Women, that really centralizes that story on the women again. And so that we discovered that one of the things with this narrative of art in our area, women tended to be the ones that came and came back again and again to connect with this area. And then we also were interested in kind of revising a bit about abstract expressionism as a painting centric narrative. Um, Out of the three artists that we cover, only Elaine de Kooning is a painter. And so we're putting some pressure on the movement for how it can incorporate and include a mosaicist like Jean Reynaud and a sculptor like Louise Nebelson. And then at the same time, it's geographically recentering what is a New York movement but it isn't, right? So it's only partially a New York movement. And that sort of also changes the timeline too, because, um, you know, even in Ninth Street Women, um, you have Mary Gabriel kind of focusing on the New York moments and they're earlier, but 
our moment kind of picks up when the New York moment starts to move into pop art and into postmodernism. But our moment kind of goes between the 50s and the 80s. So it's the longevity of ABEX in a way that surprised me and surprised us. So I'll pass to Bonnie now because I could probably keep talking about this forever, but I'm sure I've missed something. I would just add that in Amy's comments about pressurizing what abstract expressionism is, we are and we aren't. We're pressurizing more the criticism of how abstract expressionism has been understood because it's so clear from the historical resources that have been made available to us that abstract expressionism has long embraced areas that are not painting, has long embraced geographical breadth, has long embraced women as central players, that what we're doing is simply recuperating um, the way it had formerly been understood. And that's kind of exciting because it tells you that the people that we're looking at are not um, limited in their worldview. It is more uh, actually academics who have been limited in their worldview and have sort of only been interested in talking about one or two strands of this tradition. I'm smiling as a fellow academic and an art historian um, about your your comment there about who kind of who is maintaining this standard that abstract expressionist work comes from New York and it's painting. Um, the decentering project of the book, listeners, I I know you will be very interested, and you've already heard teasers that we've got uh, women artists who work with mosaic tile. And then we also have a sculptor already. We're in kind of what I would say is a radical moment in the history of ABEX. To that end, I wondered if we could open up a little bit the Amarillo, Texas part of the story and maybe talk to us a little bit about Dord Fitz, who seems to be pivotal in the bringing, bringing of the women West. Yeah, so it's about three women artists, but then there's this pivotal gentleman at the center of it. And we found him to be someone that is really interesting and worthy of study, too. Um, And we kind of spent the first introductory chapter giving a bit of background. Um, One of the things that I think is so interesting about Fitz was his commitment to education and teaching. And he did this in a way that was pretty non-traditional. He was actually let go from a traditional academic art education position and started doing this itinerant teaching around the regional area. So this man would get in a station wagon and drive hundreds of miles every week and teach these classes to you know, adult learners kind of continuing education classes rather than, you know, studio art professionals. And he created this incredibly strong community of people interested in art and abstraction. And it was those people who he introduced to the three women artists from New York, who then became their students 
their patrons, their friends. Um, so he was a networker, but he is kind of also making us rethink the value of teaching and itinerant teaching and community building through education in some ways that, you know, back to this question of like the role of academics, I think we have to rethink even the role of education beyond maybe traditional academic narratives. Well, and and the way that we judge people who teach and who teach well as oftentimes lesser academics, right, as not as good. But if you uh, so often we have a tendency to assume that people who are good teachers are so because they can't do good research, don't choose to, or in this case, don't choose to do. They don't have their own studio. They aren't wealthy enough to be able to forego the teaching. And instead, what we're finding is these women are fantastic teachers and fantastic artists, and that they understand the interrelationships well between both these areas of study. And of course, Dord Fitz, who was uh, formerly a curator and a, a, a dealer of art, he was the person who would bring these women out. He's the one who connected all of these women to the area, who uh, would have them show in his gallery, would uh, drive and offer these art classes, but also would bring in locals. Uh, they would he would bring in the, these women to teach these workshops for his uh, through his studio, and through his dealership. Um, and through his uh, uh, work, and they would teach these classes, and that would create inner relationships between the students and the dealer and the artists themselves. And so you have students who would travel to New York to visit the artists in their home studios, and then the artists would come and stay with patrons of their art here in our area and local areas, uh, ranches in our region, for sure. And they would become both you know, amateur artists in many cases, and they would also become patrons of these people long term. And so uh, Fitz made his money on that kind of building that kind of very interpersonal one on one relationship. And he in particular was supportive of women artists and thought that they were tops in art, that they were the best uh, of the artists that were available. And there's something really, I don't know, we found that to be really compelling about him. Um, I'll jump in for just a second to explain a little bit about where Bonnie gets that word, that title tops in art. Fitz in 1960 decided to do a pretty major show of 18 women artists in Amarillo. And we've Bonnie and I have co-authored an article in Woman's Art Journal about this show in particular. And we really make that argument that he did see the women as not women artists, but as the best in art. And so this idea of the relationship that was founded was on the quality and the challenging nature of their work. Um, and and we really felt like Dord saw that in a unique way and does deserve some attention for that um, that vision, that visionary aspect. And in the book, the, as you mentioned, the attention and the cultivation of the women, it's really, it's very inspiring on his part and the patrons and the students I, who even would pitch in and buy a work together from one of these, uh, one of the artists. And with, with that context of your book, 
Can you tell us a little bit now how we have three artists in the book, how he connected first, let's maybe discuss Elaine de Kooning, who is um, and, and probably a famous name, maybe the most famous name. I don't know. She's got a competitor there. But um, how did he make the connection and select the women? Um, yeah, we go over this in the book. It's actually a pretty interesting story where Dord was doing shows in New York with his students' art. And this was in 1956. And um, Jeanne Reynal and her husband, Tommy Sills, attended one of the shows and got to talking to Dord because, of course, Jeanne and Tommy were very social and so was Dord. So this is not surprising. And then Jean said, oh, I'll introduce you to some of my friends because Jean and Tommy were very connected to people like Elaine and Willem de Kooning and Milton Resnick and, you know, other kind of ABEX leaders. And so this is how he was, he was told by Jean to go knock on Milton's door, I think, Milton Resnick. And then Milton invited him to a party where Elaine and Willem were there and he got to talking to Elaine and he convinced her that he had a really reputable gallery in Amarillo and that he would love to start showing her work there. So by 1957, he is doing a show of Milton and Elaine and some other artists, Franz Klein, some other artists work in Amarillo and he drove the canvases across the country on, what do you call it? Um, stretched them, put them in his his uh, station wagon and drove them to Amarillo and then kind of launched this ABEX scene in and among his Amarillo patrons. Um, so the story is actually pretty interesting about how it unfolded. But Elaine, although Jeanne was the initial person to introduce him, Elaine and Dord really hit it off. They were good friends for the whole time until the, the year they both died in 1989. So, yeah, Elaine was kind of the gatekeeper in some ways to having Dord make all of these connections to New York artists. I don't have as much to add on this one, so apologies. I'm just going to say she was the person who helped him make acquaintances to other people. She was incredibly social in the New York scene as well, so she would introduce him around and promote it and... uh, um, and the first person who sort of would come out for regular gallery showings and exhibitions of her work. She was the person who would first offer workshops and of course was central in um, just coming out regularly and cultivating patrons here. Uh, People here got to know her very well and would remark fondly upon her. She's claimed as a Texas painter here. Um, So I'm not sure where else to go here. I like this uh, claimed as a Texas painter. And um, when you read the book, you learn how much time she really spent in Texas. And now we have a I'd like to hear a little bit about this, I think, pretty fantastic argument you make about her her bull paintings, uh, paintings of the bull that, you know, kind of an archetypal subject that abstract expressionists liked. Um, you have some very interesting observations about what she does with her paintings of the bull out West. So one of the other things that I want to kind of, as a theme draw in at this point is this reciprocity, you know, 
Fitz got New York artists to come and he kind of got some clout with that. But Elaine got a lot out of the relationship too. So one of the things that she um, secured for herself pretty quickly after she met Fitz was a year-long teaching job at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And during the 1958-1959 academic year is when she started driving, well, a friend of hers, student of hers and friend, drove her to Juarez, and they attended almost weekly um, bullfights. And that opened up this idea of a new topic for her, a new subject matter. And she continued to do kind of bull-oriented paintings, even into the years where she was drawing on cave paintings in Europe in the 70s and into the 80s. So she investigated that subject matter for decades and decades of work. And one of the things that we really kind of dug into in the book is this idea of how they were dismissed a little bit because they were more figural and this relationship in Abex with um, the critics who dismissed figuration and what Elaine's stance as a critic herself on that was and how she pushed back in her work and in her writings on that. But then we also wanted to just show a lot of her bold paintings because we find them so incredibly stimulating and edgy and beautiful, but they're also so deeply connected to the American West. And we're talking about the American West that crosses borders of nations, right? So the American West that goes driving between Albuquerque and Juarez, Mexico, and then travels all the way to Europe. So these are not just regional local paintings. These are international on some really interesting level. Yeah, and I would add they're perfect subjects for abstract expressionism in the sense that they are about action, but that we found that there are so many here in private collections um, that uh, we knew that people knew about some of her bull paintings, but we didn't know if people knew really quite how many there are. And so many of the ones that we share in the book are have never been put together so that you can see a sort of trajectory or that you could see... Um, development. Um, Some of the things that she talked about are things about the way the West changed her perspective when she painted so that her paintings became horizontal instead of vertical. They came up with incredibly bright, bright hues instead of the sort of darker, more um, muddied colors that she used when she was in the city. And this changed her painting dramatically. So what Amy's saying about reciprocity is something that we should emphasize when we're talking about both the bull paintings as well as some of her other works, that she's um, not just uh, coming here with her New York, coming to the region with her uh, New York aesthetics and, and sort of offering to sell it, that she's actually coming here having these experiences and bringing that idea back with her. And it changes the way that she paints drastically. Um, I'll add one more thing too that Bonnie and I, I think we note somewhere in the book, but it was something that kind of hung over our heads while we were working on Elaine de Kooning for years. And that's that she doesn't have a catalog raisonné of her work yet. And so this idea of, you know, and our book makes no attempt to create that, but it does 
attempt to show the broad range of bull paintings and portraits. And, you know, there has been some excellent scholarship on Elaine's portraiture out of the National Portrait Gallery. But a lot of the pieces that we discovered by uh, being held in private hands in this area are still off the radar for Elaine scholars. So I think that it is prime moment now to start kind of culling together all of her work so we could see. And, you know, I'm a George O'Keefe scholar too. And George O'Keefe's Catalogue Raisonné allows scholars to just really see the broad range of what she did as an artist. And Elaine deserves that too. She needs that kind of, um, it's a huge undertaking, but if we could really see the breadth of her body of work, we would learn so much. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. It is somewhat shocking that we do not have a catalog raisonné uh, for Elaine de Kooning, but it's also a moment of possibility, as you say, for scholars and students to um, fill these gaps. And I and your book is paving the way, certainly. I. I have another question for you, which may get back a little bit to the expectations scholars do have for who does abstract expressionism and how. And it is related to the theme of action, which you cover in the book and um, what what constitutes a so-called action painting. And if you would talk a little bit about that, we might be able to bring in Jean Renal and her mosaics as kind of a new twist on action? Yes. Um, we investigated Jean Reynaud's, uh way of working and the way that critics discussed her way of working as being very embedded in narratives of action art, not action painting. We always give credit to Rosenberg for you know, American action painting, but it was so broader than that. And we look at, say, Reynolds, um in-process photographs compared to Jackson Pollock's in-process photographs, and they're both showing themselves being active makers in ways that are comparative. But then also, you know, Reynolds is doing it from a perspective that makes us question the performance of gender at the same time. You know, she's wearing jewelry and a skirt and, um, you know, has her kind of hair tied back in a way that doesn't diminish her femininity. So really putting some pressure, we talked about pressurizing or, you know, recuperating a broader um, story of action art through someone like Raynal, we really dug into that. And I'll pass to Bonnie here because a lot of this was like her observation of the comparison of those photographs and of a really deep investigation of performance. I would just add, I guess, that first of all, she's working in a manner, and this is as much Amy's as mine, working in a manner that is absolutely consistent with something like the dribbling of Jackson Pollock. 
that she is creating avant-garde methods of mosaic creation uh, by uh, creating a, a ground and then sort of sprinkling her tesserae into it in a way that is not at all different, even though the obviously the you don't think of mosaic as something that you can sort of have it happen haphazardly because it's so it doesn't have the same immediacy as painting, but that somebody like Raynal is sophisticated enough as an artist that she is absolutely reproducing that same sort of ethos and action, visible action in her mosaics as someone like like Pollock. More so in some sense because she's incredibly conscious of the way light hits her tiles. And so, in fact, the action is carried over not only into her methods, but also into the way the viewer reacts and responds to her. I don't want to, her, her, I don't, her, her wall works so that they end up being as you walk around them um they hit the light hits in different ways and it creates uh, a change a literal action on the ground uh of her work as you as you move around them so it creates action in the viewer action in the paint in, in the in the in the tiles itself and in her process. And I'll add to that too. So Bonnie is hitting something that we discovered on the road looking at Reynolds in person. And this is in private collections, also in the um, state capital in Nebraska, in Lincoln, Nebraska. They don't photograph well. It's really hard to like create a still color photograph of Reynolds art because they just look kind of flat and boring and they're not. They come to life as you as a viewer move in front of them and around them. And I think this was something that also opened action art up to something that involves the viewer looking even forward towards say minimalism or postmodernism in a way, like kind of expanding abstract expressionism going back to our title but expanding it beyond just the action being in the making and then it stops right the action is in the viewing as well and i think bonnie like is pointing to that in such an important way with that said do you feel that the the women in the book i was going to say demand or they have taken abstract expressionism into, could we say, a deeper level of this audience um, participation or the requirements of the audience? And, and this could apply also to Louise Nevelson, who was discussed in the book? I think yes. I mean, one of the things that we were trying to see is how Nevelson changed based on being in the West starting in 1960. Like, it was kind of obvious how uh, Elaine de Kooning changed because she talked about it again and again, right? But the thing with Nevelson is that she doesn't write like Elaine does, and she, but she talks a lot endlessly. And what's so interesting is that that wonderful book, The Dawns and Dusks Memoir, that was um, verbalized by Nevelson and then written down by Diana McCowan. For some very strange reason, they left out the Western portion and they actually, Dord Fitz and Diana McCowan, exchanged letters about acknowledging 
um, the influence of the West on Nevelson, but it never shows up in that book. And we don't really know what happened to that. But when what Bonnie and I were discovering is how after she starts coming to the West, some of her works shift from wood to metal. Some of them shift from black and white to gold. We really made a good big deal out of the golden works, which were very poorly received in New York, but beloved by people in our area. And we can, you know, go into that in more detail if if you you want us to. But the other thing we noticed is that she started opening up and like creating mirrored back things, so opening up the space in her works. And then it kind of shows this one work that we focused on. It's called literally called Windows to the West. And it's in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it's a public um, sculpture, large scale outdoor sculpture. But that is, it's like creating windows instead of walls. So she goes from walls to windows. And we don't want to make too much of the West is the only influence here. We don't want to do that. But I think there is something that you could play through with Nevelson that opens up the readings of her sculpture beyond some of the um, the scholarship that is very uh, not as focused on the West. Yeah, I would add that she is playing with audience engagement to return to this question that you started with, um, that she's playing with audience engagement in such things as being able to move the crates around that she's constructing things out of, that she's inviting you to do it the way you think it should be done over and over and to, to change it as you go. So she's a strategic enough salesperson here while she's working at, um, in our region and, and we have a very working class audience. Um, she's the, she's the, um, person who inspired Dord Fitz to create that collaborative uh, system to purchase her really expensive work. So he's he's got a lottery going, um, and uh, having everybody donate partial partially to create to buying her largest piece here. Um, and so the directions uh, that we have are left by the museum people to make sure that things get left in exactly the same way, but. Nevelson's directions are looser. They're much more turn it the way you like and uh, do it any way you like in a different way. And and it's pretty neat to see her be, um, I don't know, not as rigid. And she invites that action as part of the construction of her pieces. And we have several pieces here that are either a single box instead of the whole wall of boxes where the patron could afford only one box or one that has doors that open and shut. And so it's not like Nevelson told this friend of hers, this patron who became a friend of hers, don't touch it, leave it like this forever. No, it was more like open it, close it, change it how you want. So I think that idea of audience participation plays through in some unique ways in the very pieces we have in our area. Maybe this question is just forcing an argument nobody wants to make, but is there a way in which the West freed up, you know, a little bit of room for experimentation with any of the women, do you think, that they might have felt was not going, as you were saying, Amy, be well-received in New York, but ultimately they could play more out West? Um, I love this question. (laughs) Yeah, Bonnie, you take it. Run with it. No, I mean, I think think Amy and I really do believe in this idea that the West offered these women possibilities that they were not finding elsewhere. 
that they, um, I don't, I, I think, again, it comes down to those stereotypes that these women were probably more accepted as artists back in New York in lots of ways, um, but they also didn't make money, didn't make enough. And, and they were embraced as premier artists out here. Um, whether that's because uh, the West is more or less welcoming of women, I can't tell you. Whether that's because sort of stereotypically progressive areas are oftentimes not as welcoming as women, despite this lip service to it, I can't tell you. I just know that these women found something here that they didn't find there. And that I think that that is part of the mythos of the West and that the mythos of the West is something that these women were engaged with. Yeah. So engaged with on the ground, in the dust, going to things like cow chip throwing contests or, you know, hiking in a canyon or taking a bath in a creek. That was Nevelson. Apparently she didn't like to take showers. She wanted to take a bath in a creek. But, you know, this idea of like living the mythos and enjoying it, you know, like they didn't become, they didn't move here. Uh, O'Keefe moved to New Mexico and kind of embraced that as her new home. None of these women embraced it as their new home, but at the same time, they embraced life in the West as maybe a getaway, as an escape, as a second home in some ways um, that I think is really interesting. Must we all only have one home space? I don't think so. And then the other thing too is this book, and, and we try to do this because you know, I grew up in an urban place and then Amarillo is sort of urban, but with this huge rural swath around it, kind of complicating that dichotomy of rural and urban. And it's not this kind of this or that. And those women, you know, could appreciate how Amarillo was a city and Albuquerque was a city, but there's a lot of rural open space where they could learn to drive. Um, Elaine de Kooning was taught to drive out here and then bought a car and drove herself all the way back to discover, you know, Kentucky and places that she had never been in the United States. And same with Raynal. I mean, Raynal drove cross country a number of times early with her family when she was young and then later, you know, with um, a partner of hers. But this idea that of getting on the open road, these women did that kind of literally rather than just in their minds or kind of imaginatively. Um, so we really kind of played through those issues of, you know, what are the stereotypical expectations of ruralness or Westernness or being a woman in the West? And we had fun with that a lot because we're living it here too, day to day, you know. And then I would add that we tie that into abstract expressionism, which has its own uh, mythos of the open canvas of the blank space of creating things that are absolutely from scratch. And of course, this is um, a conceit. It's not entirely true. However, it's uh, prevalent nonetheless in both our art historical dialogues and in the way we understand abstract expressionism. And it is tied to that dreams of the West. I feel that after reading the book, um, listeners and readers will never think of abstract expressionism the same way, nor as just the painting. And as you're both saying, um, this, this Western element really opens up what was always perhaps quite expressive and imaginative and creative about abstract expressionism, but maybe it was getting a little stale. 
Um, if you were, may I ask you what your next step project is, is uh, either together or separately? And will you continue on themes from the book, this book, or do you have something else in mind? That's a great question. We haven't found our next collaborative project yet, but we're searching and we're not done working together. Right, Bonnie? Like, I don't want to quit. <laughs> we're also hosting the Space Between Conference coming up here in the next uh, summer. And that's an interdisciplinary conference for things that happened between 1914 and 1945. And I mentioned it because we're co-hosting it. And so this is a collaborative project that we're working on. And I think we're going to hear all sorts of people who have impressions about the area that will lead us to our next research projects. We certainly are excited to learn as much as we are excited to write about the area. And one of our themes has to do for that space between conference has to do with like um, being out and getting out of a norm, but also like way out West or, you know, cause we're inviting people to come to our area, which is a bit of a pilgrimage, I think for some people, but I think they might discover like these women from New York, that the mythos is charming and interesting and perhaps inspiring. And so we're sort of hoping that that happens with people. You know, I would invite any, listeners that want to come on out for our conference to think about it. Um, so we're really excited about that. And then the other thing that I will say, um, I'm finishing up a book manuscript that is the leftover art stories that haven't been told yet in, in other projects of mine. And this is just sort of my side pet project. But one of the things I'm really excited to look into is um, George O'Keefe's the, the fake pieces that came out of Canyon in the 90s, um, late 80s, after she passed away and into the 90s. So kind of bringing back a little bit of investigation into the um, inauthentic pieces that were discovered in our area of O'Keeffe's. And then also a chapter on a Frank Lloyd Wright house that is was built in Amarillo right at the end of Frank Lloyd Wright's life. And that really has been off the radar for right scholars and architecture historians. So there's still more stories to be discovered and told about our area. Um, and I'm really, you know, it's like it doesn't get old yet. So still exciting things to come, I think. That's fantastic. And I'm excited. And I anything I want to interview you both for anything that you produce. And I, you mentioned, you know, it's a bit of a pilgrimage to go to Amarillo, but it sounds to me like a very fruitful one. Um, I want to thank you both for your time today and for letting us have kind of an insider's perspective on the book. Again, I would like to remind everyone the book is called Three Women Artists, Expanding Abstract Expressionism in the American West. And we've been speaking with the authors Amy Von Lintel and Bonnie Roos. This book is published by Texas A&M University Press 2022. And again, thank you, everyone.